Earlier this year, BuzzFeed reporter Anne Helen Peterson wrote an article called How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. This article generated a lot of interest and started a conversation about the high rates of burnout among the millennial generation. In her article, Peterson describes burnout as when you let life's simple chores, the high effort, low reward stuff, fall by the wayside. These are things like registering to vote or submitting claims to your insurance provider. The explanation, in her view, was the belief that we should be working all the time. And we agree with this, but burnout is not just letting chores pile up, and it is not just a millennial-specific condition. Today we discuss what burnout really is, how you can identify it, where it comes from, and what you can do to protect yourself from it. I'm Nicholas Bremner. I'm Jose Espinoza. And you're listening to Mind Your Work. A podcast about social science and work, and what happens when you put these things together. Burnout has actually been around for a very long time as a clinical diagnosis, since 1997. And since then, the diagnosis hasn't really changed very much. There are three basic components to burnout. There's exhaustion, cynicism, and a sense of reduced professional accomplishment. In order to be clinically diagnosed with burnout, you have to be experiencing a high level of exhaustion, coupled with either a high level of cynicism or a high level of reduced personal accomplishment. Exhaustion is pretty much what it sounds like. It's characterized by having a very low level of energy, just generally feeling negative, and then also just kind of feeling like you're depleted. Cynicism involves feeling generally callous or uncaring, either towards the people you encounter at work or just generally towards your work itself. And then finally, a reduced sense of personal accomplishment means that the way you feel about how you accomplish your work is kind of futile, and you just don't feel like you're making much of an impact and you actually can't perform effectively perhaps like you used to be able to. And although we started the episode by talking about the the clinical diagnosis of burnout, we're still going to be talking about burnout that relates to the workplace. The other important thing to remember is that burnout is a very specific thing. Like it says, you have to be experiencing exhaustion and on top of that also be experiencing cynicism or a sense of reduced personal accomplishment or both on top of that. That's a little trickier. Lots of us get exhausted every day. We get tired from our work. We feel like we don't have any energy, but we bounce back and we recover. For people who are experiencing burnout, that's not the case. It becomes a cyclical experience that occurs every day when you show up to work. Given that we're going to be talking about burnout today in a work context, it makes sense to talk about job-related or organizational-related things that actually cause burnout. And there is one dominant theory in the academic literature that does an excellent job of explaining this called the job demands resources theory. The general idea is that on the job, you face certain stressors. These can take the form of complicated or challenging tasks. Uh, They can take the form of difficult coworkers, or they could take the form of something like a policy that you find unfair or unjust. These are called stressors because they could potentially stress you out, but it depends on how you react to it. If something actually does stress you out, it becomes strain, which is the body's physiological and emotional response to these environmental stressors. The key factor that protects us from these stressors and prevents them from turning into strain right away is our resources. And so the job demands resources theory suggests that there are a whole bunch of different resources we can use to kind of protect ourselves against these stressors. Examples could include talking to coworkers for support, 
finding new or innovative strategies to complete a task that makes it easier, or even just having more motivation and a positive attitude towards a challenge. And hearing all this, you might think that we're discounting the person. That's not true. But the reality is that we have very small to moderate effects from individual differences, things like your personality as it relates to burnout. Sure, they play a role, but research consistently shows that workplace context, the demands, the stressors, the strain, and the resources you have access to in your workplace are the main things that are actually influencing whether you experience burnout or not. Great examples of this are occupations that tend to experience high levels of demands at work, like mental health professionals, people who work in medicine, teachers, and even journalists who operate in dangerous places tend to experience more burnout, regardless of the kind of person they are, than people in occupations with fewer demands. So let's talk about some examples of stressors. There are some, some classic stressors that have been commonly examined in the literature. One of them is the level of workload you have. The more work that you have on your plate, the more stressful your work could potentially be. Some people are, are more capable of handling that than others, come up with better strategies than others, um, and some have more support than others in order to deal with that. Another really good, really good example of a stressor is the level of autonomy you have in your work. If you have control over your environment and you can make decisions, uh, you're actually able to cope with the demands of your job better. Whereas if you have limited capacity to make decisions, uh, limited capacity to choose when you work, this actually harkens back to one of our earlier episodes about flexible work arrangements and how flexible work arrangements are actually better for employees. Also related to burnout is the experience of role ambiguity and role conflict. Role ambiguity refers to not knowing exactly what you're supposed to be doing at work. In relation to that, you might also be experiencing role conflict, where even though you might know what you're doing, the reality is that you're receiving competing directions or have competing stakeholders at work. You might have multiple managers, for example, that want different things from you. So even though you know what you're supposed to be doing, you're stretched pretty thin. And the reality is you can't complete both sets of tasks, no matter how hard you try. Role conflict can also come into play uh, in highly political organizations where you may have managers who are actually competing against each other to have their agendas pushed forward and expect you to drive competing priorities. This can be this can be highly stressful when you're involved in politics and it can manifest itself as burnout if you're if you're experiencing this for a very long period of time. So these are the, the most commonly studied stressors in the academic literature. But given the occupations that burnout is, is most common in, like law enforcement, firefighting, healthcare professions as well, there are some other potential stressors that I think would play a really key role. And I'm not sure if these are studied elsewhere, but I think they, they are pretty important. So for instance, I think the, the emotional weight behind what you're doing plays a key role. Um, so in law enforcement, you're dealing with crime, you're dealing with uh, situations that can be very can kind of shake you at a personal level. Same with, with healthcare, when you're dealing with patients, when you're dealing with loss, when you're, when you're consoling families. I think one thing these occupations have in common is a focus on emotional labor. So when you actually have to kind of save face and despite feeling a certain way like anger or sadness, you kind of have to keep that under control and be a source of strength for the people you're working with and keep that in check. And, and oftentimes that can kind of manifest itself when you come home and, and you know the weight of the day starts to kind of weigh you down. I agree. And I think there are two related areas of research that maybe touch on that a bit. The first of that is, like you mentioned, this idea of emotional labor. There is some research on something called emotional dissonance, which is this idea that employees who go to work and have to fake their emotions, for example, working in something like customer service, that has been associated with 
essentially suffering more from emotional exhaustion at the end of the day, which is, like we said before, a key component of job burnout. So even though they might not be in a high stakes situation where using their emotions kind of depletes them often in relation to something like firefighting or telling someone bad news about a patient, it does seem like relying on your emotions and kind of using up those resources every day can lead to emotional exhaustion. Similarly, like you mentioned as well, there is this idea that work to non-work conflict and that kind of transference actually leads to burnout as well. People who bring work home also tend to be the people who report experiencing burnout the most. And the relationship is pretty stark, particularly for the emotional exhaustion component. So really what it comes down to is different jobs have different stressors. There, there are some key commonly studied stressors. And then there are, there are also some some really fundamental differences in terms of the the gravity of these stressors, you know, the the consequences of potentially making a mistake and, and the pressure that puts on on you as a professional. Um, there's, you know, a big difference between an office worker who may have the pressure of being successful at, with a sales meeting versus uh, a doctor who is faced with the pressure of messing up a surgery. Consequences of those are very different. However, in the moment for those individuals, for those respective individuals, they may feel similar. They may manifest themselves similarly. So both individuals are potentially prone to burnout if they don't cope effectively. And so this kind of brings us to our next section on how you actually deal with burnout. What are some of the things you can do to protect yourself? And if you found yourself experiencing burnout, what can you do to kind of reverse that effect? First thing we can recommend is for you to try to take a hard look around you and see what are the things at work that are causing you stress, that are the things that lead to burnout that you simply have no control over. And with the mention of control, it's important to make a a distinction between things that you you never will have control over. We, We mentioned autonomy before. And I think the key distinction here is that having a lack of control or a lack of autonomy is particularly stressful when you could potentially have control over it. Examples of this include control over how you schedule your work or what tasks you choose or or even how to go about completing a project. A lack of autonomy here can be stressful because you know deep down that in a different job, if it was structured differently, you could have control over it. So if you've managed to identify those things that are out of your control and you can't do anything about, that's also going to give you a list of things that you can do something about. So like scheduling and be able to kind of choose how you approach projects, for example, it might be worthwhile to seek out those opportunities. It might not be that there's no way to get that control. It just might be that you haven't actually looked into getting that control. It's going to be much easier to protect yourself from burnout if you seek out ways for you to control the things that matter, that ultimately are the things you can get control over. And along those lines, if you find that the nature of your role is lacking clarity or it's very ambiguous, you can actually seek information from your manager and try and establish that clarity. Work with your manager to try and establish goals, establish um, a preferred way of working. These are examples of things that are more under your control and ways in which you can actively cope with things that, if left unchecked, could potentially contribute to burnout. Once you've moved past addressing things at work, you can also try working on things that you can do for yourself. And we have a lot of research that supports the idea that relaxation techniques are a good way to start preventing burnout or to start reducing the influence of things like emotional exhaustion. 
We suggest you go back and listen to our episode on mindfulness. Mindfulness is one relaxation technique that actually might be a really worthwhile way for you to start addressing the causes of burnout early on as you start experiencing its symptoms. Another perspective that might be useful to you as a listener is if if you manage employees and you're concerned about them potentially developing burnout, there are a number of things you can do as well to kind of help them with that. If you go back to our episode on management versus leadership, uh, there's a lot of literature suggesting that leaders who are perceived as more transformational actually help protect their employees from burnout. Reason being is these employees are more likely to find meaning in their work. They're more likely to be passionate about what they're doing, which can serve as a protective factor. The other thing is there's a construct or a concept called leader member exchange. And this really just boils down to the quality of the relationship between you as the manager and your employee. And that's really based on a foundation of interpersonal trust. And so the idea here is that if your employees trust you, they're more likely to like you, and they're also more likely to come to you with their problems. And you can kind of help function as uh, as a form of social support for them in the workplace that can really help protect them against burnout. The last thing we want to leave you with before we move on to our discussion is what are the signs you should be looking for if you want to help others who might be experiencing burnout? The main thing we can recommend is for you to make yourself a resource to other people. Don't assume that others are experiencing exhaustion or are showing early signs of burnout. But if you see that someone is struggling, offer help. It's very possible that these people might not know that you are a resource or that you are willing to provide any help that you can. So seek that out in those situations. And ideally, you're going to be helping overall if all of us take the same perspective. The key here is really just to not assume that someone is burning out. But I mean, if you if you offer support as a resource, you're potentially protecting them against that. And you're also just creating a more generally supportive work environment in your in your team or your work group, which is, you know, every, every organization could use more of that. So to finish off today's episode, we wanted to spend a bit of time discussing some questions we had about burnout. So the first is, do we live in a burnout culture? Are millennials the burnout generation, as this article by BuzzFeed suggests they are, or we are, given that you and I, Jose, are both millennials technically? What's your take on this? I think it's a really interesting question. And I think the argument that I'm most partial to is the argument that We live in a burnout culture because the system forces us to. People are working more than ever because we're expected to work more than ever, given that work is so flexible. If we recall back to that whole episode we did on flexible work schedules, we talked about the dangers of kind of of work permeating all of your life if you let it happen. And I think I'm persuaded by the argument that we have set up a society that now encourages that. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. I think that the lines between um, your home life or your personal life and your work life are being blurred substantially, especially with the rise of technology as well. And I mean, it's it makes it a generational issue, but it's not an issue that affects young people only or people in their 20s and 30s. It affects older individuals who are still in the workforce and use, utilizing technology as well. So it's not a millennial issue specifically, but it is a an issue of the times. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think we shouldn't automatically say that it's just millennials or just particularly our generation, et cetera. I was watching a movie just yesterday and basically there's this scene where the there's these two people who are in the office all the time and it's like 7 p.m and they're about to leave the office and he says oh yeah like i'm I'm going back home to get married over the weekend and basically the other guy questions what do you mean you're getting married and he's and he says something to the extent of 
You know how it is. Have a family at home so you can work hard at the office. What does that even mean? And he says, "Isn't so? Yeah, so the idea." And he says, "Basically, isn't that ironic? The idea that the only reason you would ever have a family is to spend more time at the office." So you have something to avoid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or something to work for. I think was the suggestion. Okay, all right.、Um, but but anyway, the the movie takes place in like the the early fifties. So I don't think this idea is is、oh, hasn't been、sense. around. But I don't think this is something necessarily new. I just think we have created a situation, sometimes culturally, sometimes the way that the system works, that encourages people to work more and more, because in part we believe that if you work enough, you'll get what you want. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Actually, I, and so at the risk of overgeneralizing here, I think that there has been kind of a general shift in the philosophy of why we work over the years. So, like with the boomer generation, kind of what you're talking about in that movie as well. It's like you work hard for your family, you work hard to, to be a provider. I think that the the general narrative about why we work now is to change the world and to be passionate. And to, I mean, at least in certain sectors. Like, I mean, I'm certainly biased because I'm I'm in the tech industry, and that's really the kind of narrative around here. It's like, oh, we want to like change the world. We want to, you know, affect our communities and make the world a better place. And so that's it's overwork that stems from passion. And so, actually, a good example of that is this this image I saw on on Twitter that was taken in a WeWork office. The WeWork is the the shared working space that's that's become really popular. Where basically you pay. Monthly rent, and you can spend some time in these these offices, and they're they're beautiful. They have certain amenities like great internet and you know food and water and things like that. And there's this photos of the of the water cooler or the、uh, in this office, and it has like grapefruit and cucumber in it. And someone did a little art project, and there's there's text written into the cucumber that says, "Don't stop when you're tired. Stop when you are done." And I think <laughs> this message really speaks to.、Uh, The philosophy of this—I'm going to say millennial generation, this tech millennial generation—where you know it's it's a it's a focus on a high performance and a focus on passion. And if you're not passionate and you're not always productive, you know you're doing something wrong. Right. Honestly, that art might as well have said "Stop when you're dead." Right. <laughs>、um, that's basically what it comes down to. The other thing, and I've heard this argument again before. Is a notion that not necessarily again. It's not a generation. It's not our culture. It's the fact that capitalism works this way, right? Maybe before in the fifties and the sixties, we were talking about working hard for supporting our families or for achieving the American dream, and now we're working hard to basically fulfill our passions and change the world. The reasons might have been dressed up to be different, but it sounds like the outcome is the same: work more, work longer, work harder, right? So I think, I think this is the argument that's been made multiple times that. Maybe we just have set up a society that works on this. That it literally only operates because we have been throwing people into the churnal, right, into the meat grinding every time. Yeah, that's a really good point. And then actually, yeah, yeah, it's like you're you're telling the narrative that resonates with that generation, and that narrative has changed over time, but the the overall outcome is the same. And that really ties back to our our actually our very first episode of the nine to five workday, where we talk about. Um, when we used to work for ourselves, and now we're working for someone else, and we're trying to maximize the value of you know human productivity and maximize the value of a dollar, and I think burnout is、uh, an unfortunate side effect of that. And I think this brings us to the next thing you wanted to talk about, and I don't want to steal your thunder because I think you you worded it very well when we when we first pitched it as an idea. Yeah. So the the second thing that I think would be interesting to discuss is. The notion of burnout as adaptive. So there are many occupations where you're dealing with 
huge emotional demands. Uh, like let's use healthcare as a very easy example where you're dealing with the deaths of patients, you're dealing with with people, and this is a potentially very stressful occupation. And if you're dealing with that amount of heartache day in and day out, because inevitably your patients do die in healthcare, and you have to console grieving families, as a practitioner, you cannot experience that level of emotion that the families are when they're grieving day after day. It's just too much. So, I mean, my question is, this aspect of depersonalization, is that adaptive? Um, and, is, and is that the same thing as burnout? Can you, can you depersonalize your patients? Can you depersonalize the individuals you work with in some cases and not be experiencing burnout? Uh, I don't know the answer to that question, but it's one I thought I'd pose. Yeah, I'm really interested in that perspective because, again, I don't know if the research has looked at necessarily at cynicism slash depersonalization separately from burnout. And what does that look like? Is there a situation where it is useful to experience depersonalization? I have to imagine there is. I always think about doctors in these cases where, yes, they're trained on something like bedside manner, but I don't think they're trained to empathize with the patient necessarily, right? They're trained to experience sympathy and to want to be helpful and understanding, but not necessarily to invest all of their emotional selves into their patients and their situations. I think that would be really counterproductive in terms of how you would perform in the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a fine balance to be struck between patient-centered care and, you know, caring too much about the people you serve. It's, I don't know, I guess, I guess it's an open question. Maybe we'll have to do some more research about it and, and talk about it in a future episode. But you know, I think that we're very fortunate that there are people who are willing to do these very challenging jobs and willing to put themselves personally and professionally at risk in some cases to and to deal with those stressors, for sure. And that's all we have on burnout. Thank you for listening. We hope you take the time to check out the rest of our episodes. We actually mentioned quite a few of them just because they tie so closely to what we know about burnout. So this might be a good opportunity for you to go back and listen to those episodes if maybe you're a new listener and see how all of this stuff tends to tie up together. We often try to keep our topics kind of siloed off for each episode, but the reality is that a lot of what we research and what we know in IO Psych is all closely connected to each other. So we hope an episode like this one helps you see those connections. And I just want to throw this in as an aside that I think it's pretty cool that we have enough episodes to actually refer back to numerous times in an episode. <laughs> so yeah, we hope you listen. We hope you enjoy and, and, and kind of see those connections as well. As always, you can reach out to us on Twitter at MindYourWork.io, or you can send us an email at MindYourWorkPodcast at gmail.com. And finally, this is not homework, but if you're curious to see if you are potentially experiencing early signs of burnout, and this is a disclaimer, that is not a medical diagnosis, but there is a self-assessment scale you can actually take to see if you're experiencing burnout. And we'll link that in the show notes. I'm Jose. I'm Nicholas. And we'll see you soon. Oh, wait, 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 hold on. Is your mic on your desk? It is on my desk, yes. Okay, careful touching the table. Oh, yeah. I, 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 okay, I'm going to keep my hands on my legs. Keep them to yourself, sir. <laughs> okay, I, I, no typing, no chewing, no slamming the table. <laughs> Got it. Got it. All right, okay.